Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD Podcast. Hi there, this is Robin. Welcome back to another edition of the NPRD. In the very recent past, we were so lucky to have Dr. Judy Feldman with us, who shared many pearls of wisdom in her 30-year career as a psychiatrist. Judy is a psychiatrist who not only prescribes medicine, but does psychotherapy. And so her patients have been very lucky to have that dual piece in their work with her. So thank you, Judy, for being on again today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah. So last time we wrapped up with what you came to as your three principles of treatment, honesty, flexibility, collaboration. And we were very clear around those being keys to the trusting patient-provider relationship. And today, I think where we're going to go is learning more from you on how internal family systems worked and works as you have moved through these patient relationships. Absolutely. So I am very excited about internal family systems therapy. And for those of you who haven't heard about it, it was developed by Dr. Richard Schwartz, a psychologist, uh, I believe from the Midwest, uh, who did a lot of his early treatment with patients with eating disorders and also patients who self-harm. And in the course of talking with his patients, he discovered, as I think you know, many of us already know, that people have parts. And that doesn't mean that everybody has dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities. It means that we all sort of talk from different places inside ourselves. And the, the best example of that um, is there are two things that I think about. One is when somebody just says, well, a part of me feels this way and another part of me feels that way. Um, and it's an informal way of saying, gee, there are two systems inside me that are thinking about this differently. And behaviorally, those of you who have been teenagers or who have teenagers know that sometimes a teenager gets into a huge screaming fight with his or her mom or dad, and then a friend calls up on the phone, and all at once, they're not screaming, they're not crying, they're saying, hey, how you doing? You know. Now, neither of those things is an act. Those are both true, honest parts of that person who are sort of called out into the front of the stage by different circumstances. So that's another example of how people have parts. That reminds and, me, Judy, of this piece called The Letter Your Teenager Can't Write You. And uh-huh. do you know that? Have you heard of this? I haven't heard of that. It's so no. great, but it really talks to, it speaks to, you know, as teenagers being in the fight they're in, but not having the words to say it, but holding on to the rope with the parent, but 
not needing the parent. Mm-hmm. And I think it really speaks to those different parts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you work with parts, Richard Schwartz has worked out a methodology to do it. But what he says when you take a seminar with him is, well, basically, you are exploring with the other person, and you're learning from them what their parts are like and how their parts fit together. Um, And that's, I, I, I think, a good example of honesty, flexibility, and collaboration, that this is a truly collaborative treatment. Um, between two people. Um, and you definitely need to be flexible because you are really rolling with the punches and you don't know what's going to emerge when you start talking to people and have people talk to their own parts. Um, and there's certainly a lot of honesty involved, both in terms of you and the patient. But what's nice about this technique is that there is no judgment. Right. You are only saying, what is this part telling you? What is this part telling us? Um, and you're just looking at it together. Sometimes what I'll say to the patient in this realm is, how has this part served you? Or I'll remind them that if there's shame or vulnerability around a certain part, that yes, this part has served them and done its very best. Is that fair? Yes, that's totally fair. Um, One of the things that Schwartz says is that In patients who have had trauma or difficulty in their past, the parts are taking the hit for the self. Mm. And that is helping a a child in particular preserve their self, preserve their sense of identity. And they spin off these parts that actually are taking the hit. And so it's important to be very grateful and appreciative to one's parts even if there are other parts that hate those parts. Right. And, yeah. So, so be, because we can ahead. have, well, that's where the, some a lot of the internal conflict can be from. Correct. It, Correct. It, may I just jump in? A, one clarification, an extension of the definition. I love this. This is so cool. But the idea that our parts uh, perhaps arrived at different stages in our development and in a 60-year-old or a 40-year-old, there's that 2-year-old, there's that 8-year-old, there's that 15-year-old, 25-year-old. Am I am I saying that right? Absolutely. Okay. You are saying that right. And those particular parts, Schwartz calls exiles, if they are pushed down and, and covered up and put into the background because of some burden that they're carrying, like shame or fear or sadness that happens from the past. And then there are two other kinds of parts that are basically defenses and defensive parts. And those also arrive at different stages in a person's development and have a lot to do really with their their personality structure. So that, for instance, people have managers and those managers are in place all the time to try to guard the door so that the exiled parts and the very unpleasant feelings don't come out and stay buried. So you might have anxious parts, depressed parts, self-critical parts, you know, very defensive, intellectualized, rational parts. And those are kind of there all the time to help a person sort of stay in control of, you know, some of the other parts that they may not want to jump out. Then there's another kind of part called a firefighter. And that part is called on as needed um, in, in, in a time of danger when a person's feeling threatened. 
So those parts might get very angry very quickly. They might be impulsive. They might be self-harming parts. They might be overeating parts. They might be drinking, smoking, using pot kind of parts. Um, and those are valuable, too, in the sense that they are the, the um, you know, the frontline workers, uh, like, like the people who are working in ambulances um, who come out in a fire and try and put out the fire. Um, and when you work with a patient, you work with all of these different kinds of parts and help them to see them, understand them, and use what Schwartz calls self-energy, which is to be non-judgmental and calm and curious about these parts so that you can get to know them better. That's exactly where I was going to go with my next question. <laughs> So when we are with a patient and we ask them to be curious about something, can you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. And you can ask a patient to be curious, but often patients aren't curious about a certain part. You know, you say, well, how do you feel about this part that binge eats and purges? I hate it. Mm. Uh, well, but how else do you feel about it? Oh, I'm so ashamed of it. Well, how else do you feel about it? I wish it would just go away. I want to kill it. And so what you do in that sense is rather than saying, don't feel that way, you say, well, let's talk to the part that hates the binging part and see what that part has to say for itself. And so what you're essentially doing is getting to know the parts that hate the other parts, asking them gently to kind of step aside and make room for the self to kind of emerge and be curious so that you can't always legislate curiosity. It has to sort of emerge when you, when you ask all these other parts to step aside. How do you really get it? This is something Jordan and I have, I guess, I don't remember if we talked about it on a podcast or if it was just in conversation, but how do you really get at the shame? Um, you know, shame, the thing about shame is that it makes people want to hide. That's, that's the sort of the definition of shame. It's being exposed in the eyes of other people. And that's a horrible, horrible feeling. So that a person's instinct is to want to hide. So that you can't just tear away the covers of shame. It's like the parable of the sun and the wind where it's a very cold day and a man is shivering and has his overcoat on and the sun and the wind challenge each other to, you know, who's stronger, who can make the man uh, take off his overcoat. And they, oh, they both say they're stronger. So the wind tries to blow harder and harder and harder. The harder the wind blows, the harder the man clutches his overcoat. And then the sun comes out and shines and the man gets warm and starts to sweat, and he takes his overcoat off. So that's how you get at the shame. Mm. You said earlier, and I, I just want to follow up, and I appreciate your expertise, but also your sense of empathy and understanding that making peace with these parts or bringing these parts together in a non-judgmental way as a therapist is really the the most effective way to reach some sort of successful outcome. Uh, just a little mm -hmm. bit further on that, if you would, Judy, because um, 
I think a lot of people fear therapy because they fear that they're going to be, well, shamed by the therapist. They're not quite right. sure what they're going to expect. Right, exactly. And I, I think saying, first of all, that all parts are welcome means that there's no part that's a problem. So that whatever the patient has to present, that's interesting. And the therapist also has to stay interested and calm and curious and not get either frightened or disgusted or upset about the, the patient's parts so that you have to do some work on your own parts so right. that you can kind of ask them to step back so that you can be curious about, about other people. And the other thing that you say is that parts are, are neither created nor destroyed by therapy. They just take on different roles and become less extreme, become less polarized. So that, for instance, if a person has a lot of shame and, and what's polarized with that is an incredible amount of self-criticism, that what, what you're working on is trying to moderate the self-criticism and allow some of the shame to come out so that it doesn't seem so extreme. And you're just really talking about moderation. You're not talking about destroying anything or making anything go away. Which speaks to self-compassion, right? Acceptance. That's right. Self-love. Yeah. Right. And in That's our population, right. that can be that can be the bulk of the work. That's right. Generally That's is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that the parts that the person has are not bad. They, in fact, they're very good. They're valuable. They have a lot of energy, even if sometimes it's negative energy. And, you, you know, you, when you're working with a, with a really self-destructive part, what you try to help the patient to do is to say to the part, I respect your energy. I respect your strength. I am grateful for what you've done for me in the past. Right. You know, and then the part will calm down and not be quite so vehement, um, and you'll be able to talk and negotiate with it. What I sometimes say to patients in that sort of perspective is you're doing your very best at every moment, so those parts mm -hmm. have been doing their very best in those moments for you, and mm -hmm. to have that continued respect, compassion, and vulnerability. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are there any populations, Judy, that you would, or you know, sort of patients that you've come across where you wouldn't go towards the IFS work? You know, I don't. I don't think so. I, I, I think what you do is you try it out, and you, you sort of say to a patient, "This may sound a little crazy at first. I don't think that you have multiple personality disorder, but let's see if we can work this way." And some patients really like it and really take to it. Others really don't. They don't get it. Mm. And they just don't quite understand what they're supposed to do. And it's, and it's hard for people to work in that mode. And so you let it go and you do something else. Um, but I, I don't think there's anybody that I would, that I would rule out. I, I think some people who have um, attentional issues and learning issues yeah. may have a harder time just conceptually with it. Um, although I've, you know, I've, I've done IFS work with, with people with ADD, but um, it, that's the only thing I would say. It, mm. It's really, it depends on the patient, whether the patient likes this form of, of work. Super interesting and definitely a great segue from last time where mm -hmm. we had 
gone over the principles of treatment. And I just want to say thank you to you for trusting me, taking on some of your patients who are the most lovely humans I've ever met. And oh, you're welcome. How wonderful, you know, it must have been. And, you know, as you, is is it fair to say, looking at, you know, your retirement, like mm-hmm. how that you've been able to do all this rich work with these remarkable people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think most people are pretty remarkable, mm-hmm. and and I, some of the of the IFS work is a way of really helping people appreciate that. And I, I you know, a real therapy collaboration is one where where people really like each other and appreciate each other. Right. Um, you know, which isn't to say that that sometimes I don't get driven crazy by my patients because <laughs> everybody does. Um, it, it's a, I think it's a way of cultivating over time, you know, a, a deep and trusting relationship. And the patients that you are seeing are people, for the most part, that have worked with me for a long time. Yeah. And, and I think the other part is that people come and go mm. and that people self-select for the people that they want to continue with over time. And I've had probably 10 times as many patients come for a little while and then disappear and I have yeah. no idea what's happened with them. Mm. A great point because sometimes we don't know and right. doing our own our, our own work helps us <laughs> around those things too, around those pieces. That, so Yeah. yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean retirement has been a chance for me to sort of look back and think about the work over time and, and that's been sort of a rich part of the whole process of retiring which was an, is an interesting subject in itself um, that, you know, I didn't know anything about until I started doing it. Yeah. So great to have you on, Judy, again. Thank you so much. And You're very welcome. Definitely need you back for probably many more discussions. Mm-hmm. So, All right. It's been a pleasure. Take Thank good you. care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kievit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review us, and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out thenprd.com.